All right, well, good morning, Mission Church. Hey, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are in the second week of our multi-month series. Um, And last week, for those of you who were here um, or got to catch it online, you know that we began Uh, by asking and answering the who question. So we began by asking who is the author of this book. So we looked at uh, the author, we looked at the audience, and then we looked at the actualization or the fulfillment. So if last week was answering the who question, which is the person, then this week is going to ask and answer the why question, which is the purpose, the purpose. So in order to do that today, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 2 and 3. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 3. Again, Ecclesiastes, it comes right after the book of Proverbs, and uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and then we'll make our way, our way all the way through verse 3. Um, and as we read, I'd love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. All right, if you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. Everyone say, vanity of vanities. vanities. Says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, as we come before you this morning, I am just grateful for another Sunday. God, I'm grateful for an opportunity to to be here gathered um, as a local body. And uh, God, I know that you are sovereign not only over what's going to happen here this morning, but you have been sovereign over what's been happening all week, Monday through Saturday. And you know, Lord, that what is being preached on today is what needs, is what needs to be heard by the people in this room. And so, God, I pray that in light of that, uh, you would help me to get out of the way. And I, and I honestly pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for having the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. I feel that this book actually says a lot about you, that you are a God who is willing to go there. You are a God that is willing to deal with the hard questions of life, and I'm grateful for that. So I pray, Lord, that not only would we better understand the book, but that we would better understand who the book ultimately points to, which is you. So lead this time, guide this time, and we ask all of this in Christ's holy name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. All right, so like I already mentioned, uh, this morning we are going to be answering the why question. Last week we answered the who question and we looked at the person. And this week we are going to ask and answer the why question as we look at the purpose. Now, in order to unpack this concept of purpose, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage under three headings. I want to begin today by looking at the search for purpose. And then after we look at the search, I want to look at the absence of purpose. 
and then we're going to conclude today by looking at the provision of purpose. But to begin, I want to look at the search for purpose. You see, because here's the reality. The, the reality is, is that according to Ecclesiastes in particular and the Bible in general, every single human being that's ever lived, currently lives, and will ever live is searching for meaning. Every human being on planet Earth right now is looking for and searching for meaning and for purpose. Now, there are several reasons why I believe that's the case, but I'm going to give you just a couple. The reality is, is that even if someone's not willing to ask that question out loud, deep down, every single person on earth is asking, why am I here? And even more importantly, why does that matter? Why am I here and why does that matter? And just to prove to you that this is a question that people are wrestling with in our day, uh, a few years back when The Purpose Driven Life came out, to this day, The Purpose Driven Life is the second highest selling book in human history behind the Bible. That, that, that concept of purpose, what does it mean to have a purpose-driven life. That's what Rick Warren wrote about, and it was such a need, it was such a longing in the hearts of people that to this day, it is the second highest selling book in human history. And then a few years after that, um, the most famous TED Talk that's ever been given is the one by Simon Sinek, where he gets up and he talks about your why. He gives the golden circle and how in the middle of your circle has to be your why. And then he wrote a book, a New York Times best-selling book, called Start With Why. And that book was all about what is your purpose? What is your meaning? What is your why? So what we see from both of those books is that this idea, this, this question of why am I here and, and why does it matter is a question that every single person is asking. Even if they're not asking it out loud, they're asking it in their hearts. Why am I here and why does that matter? And this week as I was uh, studying this, this whole concept of, of purpose and meaning, I came across uh, a study that was published by the Harvard Medical School. And, and before I put it up, here's essentially what they were studying. Uh, they were studying this concept of life purpose and the importance of it. And so what they did is they took a group of, I think, well over 100 people over the age of 50, and essentially they measured them using certain factors, and they followed them for a four-year period. And what they discovered after the four-year period is that the people who had purpose had healthier markers of life. They were healthier overall because of the purpose that they had. And here's what they came across, or here's what they discovered in this study by the Harvard Medical School. It says, those who scored highest on a scale that measured life purpose were less likely to die during the four-year study period. So, what exactly is life purpose? That's a great question, right? What is purpose? We're going to talk about what God says purpose is here in a second, but let's go ahead and look at what the secular world says purpose is. Life purpose, get this, is defined differently by different people. So, so according to Harvard, your purpose is defined by you. You can come up and manufacture and conjure up your own purpose because it's defined differently by different people. 
They go on to say this, but in general, it indicates that you have an aim in life and goals. This purpose, the study's author said, helps make it more likely that you will engage in behaviors that are good for your health. Some studies have simply asked people, what gives them a sense of purpose in life? Says Ken, that's the guy who was writing this article. And he says, people listed such factors as family and relationships, community, helping others, learning new skills, taking part in leisure activities or hobbies, etc. But here's what I want you to see about this list. When they went out and asked people where they found their purpose, not once was God mentioned. All these things I just listed for you are horizontal in nature. There is nothing vertical about the purpose that people have. They don't even consider God as an option, according to this study by Harvard. Now, the reason why I say that is because what we see with this study and what we see with those two books that I mentioned is that we live in a culture that is fascinated with this question, this idea of purpose. We live in a culture, we live in a day where everyone, like I said, whether stated or unstated, is trying to figure out why am I here and why does it matter? They're searching for meaning, they're searching for purpose. And I would argue that the reason why humanity is so fascinated with that question and so concerned about their meaning and their purpose is because God has actually created us for a purpose. We are created by God for purpose. And that's why we long for it. That's why we search for it. That's why we seek after it. And just to prove to you that this is something that God has put in us, look what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. This is the creation story. This literally happens, this section I'm about to read, happens right after God created Adam and Eve. Immediately after he creates them, he gives them purpose. It says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, everyone say dominion, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This passage in scripture is referred to by scholars and commentators as the creation mandate. And the creation mandate is the mandate, the, the purpose that God gave humanity before sin entered the world. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over it. Essentially, what the creation mandate is and what it said was, is that the purpose of humanity is to glorify the creator as we steward creation. The purpose of humanity, according to this, is to glorify the creator as we steward the creation. And examples of creation are the fish and the birds and all the things that he mentions that are on earth. So this is the purpose. So, so part of the reason why humanity is so fascinated with this concept of, of, of meaning and purpose is because humanity was created by God for purpose. Solomon, though, seconds this. He actually follows up on this concept of purpose. He says this in Ecclesiastes 3 that we will get to in 2027. In Ecclesiastes 3, <laughs> 9 through 11, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, 
He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, so don't miss what Solomon is saying here. What Solomon is arguing is that part of the reason why we are looking for meaning and for purpose, part of the reason why we are not satisfied with these temporary purposes and meanings of life, Part of the reason why we get to the top of these ladders and we end up being disappointed and disillusioned is because God has put eternity in our hearts. And we, we, are, we are not satisfied with temporary things because God has put eternity in our hearts. That's what Solomon argues. And then he says it even more clearly at the end of the book because he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Get this. For this is the whole duty of man. What is the duty of man? To fear God and keep his commandments. That is our duty. That is our purpose. That is our meaning. That is why we are here on earth. The, the problem is, is that because of sin, we're going to talk about this more in a second, but because of sin, unfortunately, we are no longer looking vertically to the Lord for purpose, but we are looking horizontally to the world for purpose. But the reason why we long for it, the reason why we are seeking it is because God has created us for purpose. God has created us for meaning. This is what Dr. Zach Eswine says about this concept. He says, not only are we a materially famished people working and thieving about, earners and hoarders of coin and cloth, but we are likewise, get this, a soul-starved people scavenging for emotional and rational leftovers, searching for a reason, a purpose, a point to it all, attempting finally to arrive. We want our lives to count. And the reason why we want our lives to count is because whether you believe in God or not, you were created for purpose. You were created for meaning. So essentially what we're going to see in these two verses is that Solomon is going to ask the question that almost no one is willing to ask in order to address the quest that everyone is on. He's going to ask the question that no one, almost no one is willing to ask in order to address the quest that every single one of us is on. So that is the, the first truth that I want you to see this morning, which is the search of purpose. The, the second truth, the second reality that I want to discuss this morning is the absence of purpose, the, the absence of purpose. See, here's the thing. Even though we are all in search for purpose, there's actually an absence of purpose in our day. And the reason why is because even though we were created for it, we are looking for it in all the wrong places. We are looking for purpose in all the wrong places. And, and here's the thing. The reason why I stopped here is because in the verses two and three is because this section of the letter, verse two of the book, verse two and three of Ecclesiastes one is where Solomon expresses to the reader his purpose for the entire letter. And get this, Solomon's purpose for the book, not the letter, for the book, is the purpose of life. 
Let me say that again. His purpose for the book is to address purpose, the purpose of life. That this is his thesis statement. In other words, if we don't understand that the book of Ecclesiastes is, is a book about purpose, we won't understand his purpose. That's what I want you to see. That if verse one answered who, verse two and three answers why. And here's what he's about to do. In, in verse three, he, he's going to ask a 30,000 foot question. And this is the question that he's going to spend the rest of the book trying to answer. Here is the question that he is going to ask and seek to answer for the rest of the book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, here's the question he's asking. What is our purpose here? Why are we here? What is the point to it all? What's the point? Why have we been put here on earth? That, that is the question that he is proposing, and the, the answer is a bit depressing. It's a bit depressing. Here's what uh, Sean O'Donnell says about this concept. And this is literally what he argues is the unified message. This is the theme of the book. He says, another way to get at the unified message of the book is to answer the key questions raised by Pastor Solomon. The first key question is the one raised in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The implied answer is nothing. Everyone say nothing. In other words, here's what he's going to argue. If uh, uh, verse 3 is the 30,000-foot question that he's going to try to answer for the whole book, then verse 2 is his 30,000-foot answer to that question. So, so, so just, to, just to make sure you're picking up what I'm laying down, here's what Solomon's going to say. Here's the question he's asking. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the 30,000-foot question he's going to answer for the rest of the book. But just in case you need the Cliff Notes version, here is his answer to said question. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So you don't have to even be here for the rest of the series if you don't want, because that is the whole book <laughs> with one question and one response. That's what he's doing here. That's what Solomon wants us to know. So what I want to do for the next few minutes, because this really is the, the 30,000 foot question and verse two is the 30,000 foot answer. I wanna unpack these two verses for you because if we don't understand these two verses, we are not gonna understand the rest of this book. So I wanna begin by unpacking uh, each word, not each word, but some of the key words here in this question. The first word that I wanna draw your attention to is the word here, man. The word man in Hebrew is the word Adam, Adam. So if you were a uh, Jewish reader, if you were a Hebrew reader of this book, immediately when you read the word man, you would think of Adam from the book of Genesis because he is our representative. He is the representative of all humanity and humankind. So man here in Hebrew is the word Adam. Then the, the next word I wanna draw your attention to is the word gain. In Hebrew, the word here is Yitron. 
And here's essentially what it is. The word gain there is the word for profit. What is left over after everything is done? The word there for gain, it, it literally means the, what, what advantage, to what advantage did you do all the things that you did? It's a business term. It refers to the bottom line. And here's what I find so fascinating about our cultural moment. We live in a culture that is fascinated with profit. Any business book you read is about profit. The bottom line, making sure you end up in the black. What is the gain? What is the profit? What is the point? What is the advantage? Why are you doing it? What is the bottom line at the end of the, at the, end of the day? And yet, even though our culture is fascinated with this concept of profit and gain, they ask that question about their business and they never ask their, that question about their lives. The other word that I want to highlight for you is the word toil. We're going to come back to this word later on as well because it's a very important word that Solomon is going to talk about a lot. But here's what this word is. The, the word there, it, 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 it is working. Uh, it is to, to, to labor, but it's a difficult labor. It is a troublesome labor. It's to work, but with difficulty. It, it, it carries the idea in Hebrew of, of misery and of suffering. It's not a joyful labor. It's, it's a heavy yoke. That's what the word there, toil, means in Hebrew. And that's why I would say that the best translation of this word is the word striving. Because, yes, you're working, and, yes, you're doing, but it's a striving. It's, it's, it's like you got to earn every, every inch. It's a heavy, heavy yoke. And then the final phrase that we need to understand, and I would say this phrase is vital and, and central, second only to the word vanity. This is the most important phrase in the book. That's why the name of the series is Under the Sun. Because this phrase, Under the Sun, is going to set the tone for the rest of our series. And, and here's why I say that. Because the phrase there, Under the Sun, refers to life apart from God. That's what under the sun means. It's, it's life apart from God. It is a secular worldview. It is to live as if God does not exist. It is to live as if the only thing that exists is what's under the sun, the, the physical things that we can taste, touch, smell, that we can see. And, and here's the thing, and this is why I think the book of Ecclesiastes gets a bad rep, because we hear that phrase under the sun and we're like, man, what a, what a depressing phrase. How often are we going to talk about this? But the reality is, is that the book, the, the New Testament talks about life under the sun all the time, but instead of using the phrase under the sun, it just refers to the sinful world. Anytime you hear the New Testament talk about the godless, sinful, broken world, it's talking about life under the sun. It just happens to use different language than Solomon does. The reason why this phrase is so important, church, is because the next few months are going to be very depressing. We're going to read some really, really hard stuff about the emptiness of the world. But the reason why Solomon writes the way he writes is because everything he's writing is what he sees under the sun. It's because he's talking about life apart from God. And if you don't understand this phrase... I don't blame you for avoiding this book in your own personal devotional time because this phrase is what Solomon is saying is his perspective. Life under the sun is life apart from God. It's the sinful, godless, idolatrous world that stands against God and believers. Does that make sense? So again, if this is the 30,000 foot question, let's go ahead and look, look at his 30,000 foot answer. 
He says in response to that question, what does man gain? Vanity of vanities. Everyone say vanity, vanity. says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word here, vanity, is the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. And essentially what it means is, it means uh, a breath or a mist or a vapor. And uh, one of the commentators that I looked at uh, said this. Sorry, let's get to that. Okay, here's what he said about this word hevel. He says, one must aspirate twice with the initial huh sound and then again with the soft bet pronounced as vel. So, he says, the speaker illustrates what the nature of a breath is simply by saying the word. So in Hebrew, when you say the word havel, ha is the inhale, vel is the exhale. So even as you say the word, you are reminded that it means breath, that it means a vapor, that it refers to a mist that is here now and then gone a moment later. Essentially, what Solomon is trying to argue is that life apart from God is Havel. Life apart from God is purposeless and meaningless. It will get you nothing and it will get you nowhere. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he's trying to argue here. And here's what's interesting. Uh, let me go back to the word. Uh, the word there for vanity, it's actually used in numerous places in uh, the Old Testament. In one situation, Actually, in more than once, it's used to describe the foreign armies that Israel is tempted to trust in. God says, you know that Egyptian army that you're tempted to rely on other than me? Yeah, it's Havel. It, it's nothing. It, it offers you nothing. It's, it's a vapor. It looks strong, but it isn't. Right? In, in Proverbs uh, 31, it's used to describe human beauty. We live in a culture that's fascinated with beauty, that worships youth. And it's used to describe youth and beauty in the, new, in the Old Testament. That it is havel. It is empty. Youth and beauty are a breath. The other thing that I find interesting about this word vanity is that outside of Ecclesiastes, the, the, this word is most often used to describe false gods. It's the word, God's primary word to define a, a, a false idol, a counterfeit god that cannot save you and cannot satisfy you is the word Havel. He mentions it again and again, this concept of it cannot ultimately satisfy you. And then in uh, Psalms, we're gonna get here in a second, Psalm 39, verse five, he, he, this word is used, it says, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is, is nothing before you and then surely all mankind stands as a mere Havel. That is how the Old Testament uses this word, Havel. Here's the best way for me to illustrate it. If you are more of a visual person, let me illustrate it to you this way. One commentator I came across used this illustration. I thought it was spot on. He said, the best modern day example of Havel is a bubble. When people are blowing bubbles, it's hard not to be distracted by them. You're like, oh, there's a bubble. Look how pretty. Look how shiny it is. Look how fluffy it is, right? I don't know why you call it fluffy. But anyways, you know what I'm talking about. But, but, but bubbles by just their nature, they, they get your attention. The problem is, is that it doesn't matter how big the bubble is, the moment you reach out to grab it, what happens? It pops. That is what Havel is. 
That is what humanity is apart from God. That is what whatever your purpose is apart from God. It is just a bubble. It looks pretty and it looks like it has substance. And that's why Solomon uses the phrase chasing after the wind, chasing after the wind, chasing after the wind. Because if you're sitting here this morning and you, uh, 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 if your purpose is something other than uh, glorifying God by making gospel-centered disciples, we're going to talk about that here in a second. If your purpose is to make a lot of money, if your purpose is to, you know, leave a legacy for your kids, if your purpose is to, you know, whatever your purpose is, if your purpose is something smaller than Jesus, all you're doing is chasing the wind. It doesn't matter how early you get up. It doesn't matter how, uh, how late you stay up. It doesn't matter how fast you run. You'll never catch it because you are chasing wind. That's the, the picture. You are a wind chaser. I don't know if you, uh, this is more of my generation back in the 80s and 90s, but uh, back in the day, windbreakers were the thing, man. People loved themselves some windbreakers. I remember the dream team winning the, 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 in the Olympics, and they all were just windbreakered up. I remember thinking, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. My dad had like four or five of them for some reason. And I remember I would go into his closet and steal it and wear it to school. And you could hear me from like three miles away. Just whoosh, 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 whoosh. I couldn't sneak up on nobody. Man, but I thought I looked good. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about how we are wind chasers. If your purpose comes from something smaller than Jesus, if your purpose comes from something horizontal in the world around you instead of vertically in the Lord above you, you are chasing the wind. You will never catch it. You could be running faster than the person next to you. You could be crawling. You could be walking. You could be power walking. You could be sprinting. You will not catch it. That's what this word means. That's what... Solomon is getting at. Now, now, here's the thing about this whole concept of Havel. What we find here in verse 2, when he talks about vanity of vanities, and which, by the way, that phrase, vanity of vanities, the, the reason why that's so interesting to me is because in the Bible, when the, the, the authors of Scripture are trying to show you the peak of something or the height of something, they repeat it twice. So the Song of Songs refers to the best song ever written. The, the, the Holy of Holies refers to the holiest place on earth. So when it says vanity of vanities, what it's saying is that when we seek purpose and meaning apart from God, it is the height of Havel. It is the epitome of of emptiness and vapor. That's what he is getting at. And then you might be thinking, yeah, well, you know, I know that when we do world, you know, the, the world out there, like the people who are, you know, doing bad stuff, that, that can't be the purpose of your life. But my purpose is in being a parent. My purpose is in being a good employee. My purpose is in leaving a legacy for my children. My purpose is in, well, no, whatever, climbing up the corporate ladder. My, my purpose isn't as bad as their purpose. No, no, Solomon says all is vanity. That includes your false gods too. And I don't know if you are a Hebrew scholar, but all there means all. <laughs> all is vanity apart from God. Every last bit of it. So what we see here in this passage is we see specifically in verse two, the best, well, one of the best descriptions of the post-fall reality that humanity has to deal with. One of the best descriptions. 
that, that ever since the garden, again, we had the creation mandate. We not only had a person, which was God, but we also had purpose. And the purpose was the creation mandate, right? To be fruitful and multiply, to fill and subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. We, we not only lost a person when sin entered the world, we lost our purpose when sin entered the world. And so what Solomon does here is he gives us one of the best descriptions of uh, post-fall under the sun reality and humanity in all the Bible when he says, all is vanity. We can create, we can try to create purpose, we can try to manufacture purpose, we can try to conjure it up, but at the end of the day, we will be left with nothing and we will end up nowhere. That's what he says. That apart from God, we are just wind chasers. And here's, here's why I think this is important, church, because I don't think that we as believers, we as Christians do a good enough job diagnosing the actual problem. I think we think, yeah, you know, sin is bad and, you know, we need, we need forgiveness and Jesus came to save us and that's all good. But I think the reason why we don't appreciate the cure is because we don't truly understand the diagnosis. That when you understand that apart from Jesus, not only do you not have pardon, but you also don't have purpose, you are purposeless, you start to realize how bad it is. But it's in embracing and in admitting the bad news that you get to then embrace the good news. The good news becomes better when the bad news becomes worse. That, that, that I am much more likely to turn to the fullness that is found in the Lord when I first admit the emptiness that is found in the world. And here's something I want to say before we go to the last point. One of the temptations with a book like this is to only think about them out there, the outsider, the pagan, the godless society that we live in. That is the temptation, to hear a sermon like this and only think about those people. But here's the problem, church. This book is just as much about us as it is about them, whoever them is in your worldview. That, that it's not just the world that is tempted to find their purpose in the world. It is the church that is tempted to find their purpose in the world. As a matter of fact, I came across... Uh, one of the commentators that I came across, or one of the authors I came across, he refers to it as religious secularism. That in the West, we are marked by a religious secularism. That we claim Christianity, but when we actually look at how we live, how we carry ourselves, what we believe in, how we view the world, we are actually much more secular than we think. So, so if, if, if your approach to this book thus far has been, yeah, man, I, I can think of three people who need to hear this. I'm going to send him the link right after it's done. Before you send the link, click on it and watch it. Because the reality is we can sit here and bash the third culture all we want, but there is way more third culture in us than we think. We are way more secular than we think. We are way more idolatrous than we think. And this is what Dr. Ian Proven says about that. He says, this brand of religious secularism is also why so many people in the modern world who take the name Christian are in many respects indistinguishable aside from a few personal rules that make them eccentric from their non-Christian counterparts. For they have largely, get this, bought into the secular dream. 
While talking a good Christian talk, they are in fact pursuing with all their might precisely the same goals as everyone else. They are looking for happiness and fulfillment in this life, albeit with an insurance policy for the next life in their pocket. They are looking to make their mark or for their children to do so. They are looking to manipulate the world so as to achieve their own personal and family goals. Church, this is not a them problem. This is an us problem. Every single person in this room, including me, is tempted to find our purpose and our meaning in something smaller than Jesus. And this book is not going to have the effect that it needs to if we're busy thinking about the lost neighbor that we live by. Because the reality is, is that there is way more third culture in us than we would like to admit. There is way more uh, gospel syncretism where we add things to Jesus than we would like to admit. There is way more pseudo purposes that we settle for than we would like to admit. Here's what Dr. David Gibson says. This is my favorite quote of all the quotes this, to this week. He says, the writer of Ecclesiastes in his unique and inspired way has seen into the human heart and observed, get this, the particular form of pride that first lurked in Eden and still resides in us all. We want to be like God by knowing it all and having it all. And get this, and we want to build our own towers to reach to the skies. Man, it is so easy to look at Adam and Eve and said, I would never have done that. If I was in the garden and I was with God and everything was good, I would never have chosen something smaller than God. Never. The reality is we would have done the same exact thing. We look at the book of Genesis chapter 11. We see the story of Babel and we think never, I, I never would have done that. Right? Heck, I, I, not only would you have done it, you would have been the head contractor. <laughs> you would have written the blueprint. Oh, here's what we're going to do. You're over there. And you're, you'll be the, the Nehemiah of, of, uh, of Genesis 11. Church, we're not above this. And, and, and here's the thing, here's the thing. And this is something that jumped out at me when I was studying Genesis 11 several years ago. One of the things that we talk about a lot here in our church is we talk about idolatry. An idol is anything that you love, worship, rely on, trust in more than God, right? But here's the thing about idolatry. We've said this. And I don't have time to jump into all of it, but this is important. One of the things that I talk about when I bring up idolatry is that with all the idols that we can choose from, Every single person is motivated by one of three root idols. So some people are motivated by significance, and those people, what they struggle with the most is insignificance. And so they go to their false gods, they go to their, their idols in order to find approval and acceptance, in order to be loved, in order to be seen, in order to be liked. That, that's the significance group. That's, that's one group. The, the, the other group are the people that what they struggle with and what they want the most is security. And so as a result, they struggle with insecurity. And because they struggle with insecurity, they go to their false gods and they go to their idols looking for security. They're looking for control. They're looking for some semblance of a plan. They want that deep down inside. That's what they want. They want security. So they will try to control God. They will try to control their circumstances. That's what they're looking for. And in the third group are the people who what they want is satisfaction. 
And as a result, what they struggle with the most is dissatisfaction. So they want comfort and they want peace and they want uh, 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 the, the full ab uh, abundant life. But instead of going to Jesus for it, they go to the world for it. Here's what's crazy about the passage in Genesis 11. I would argue that when you look at Genesis 11, you actually see all three root idols at play. Like when you ask why they built the, the tower instead of obeying God, which is to go out and be fruitful and multiply, all three root idols are there. So, for example, it says in the text that instead of being dispersed, they settled in the, the plain of Shinar. The, the, the word there, settled, it carries the idea of not wanting to get pushed out of your comfort zone. So, so that's the, the satisfaction people. The people who don't want to, you know, be made, feel uncomfortable and want to stay in their comfort zone. So it says that the first reason why they did it is they settled because they did not want to be dispersed. So one of the reasons why they built it was satisfaction. But they also built it because of significance because it says in the text, it says, let us build a tower so that people might remember our name. They built it so that the, the significance wouldn't be God's, but theirs. They wanted the glory, not God. They were building it for significance reasons. And then the third reason they were building it was because of security. And even though it doesn't say it directly in the passage, I came across this commentator who speaks on it. Here's what he says. He says, when you look at uh, uh, the, the book of Genesis 11, the, the, the chapter of Genesis 11, only a few decades prior to Genesis 11, the global flood happened. God flooded the whole place. And what this scholar said is that there's a good chance that these people were building this tower so just in case a global flood ever happened, they wouldn't die. So you see all three. They're building the tower for significance, security, and satisfaction. Every single person in this room is building a tower right now. Heck, you might be building a mul multiple towers. You might be building a, a city center for all I know. But every single one of us, because we are idolatrous, because we struggle with this thing that Solomon is talking about, we are all building towers. It's not a maybe, it's a definitely. And so what I want you to wrestle with right now, not after lunch, uh, uh, not a, you know, on Wednesday, but right now, is I want you to ask yourself, Lord, reveal to me what tower am I building? Where am I finding my significance, my security, my satisfaction? Where am I finding my purpose in this season of life? And if in any way it's not finding your purpose in him, there's an opportunity for you to repent and believe again. Amen? And then lastly, so we've seen the search, we've seen the absence, and uh, I want to conclude today by looking at the provision, the provision of purpose. So now that we've seen the first two realities, the reality is that we are, we have been created by God for purpose. And that purpose should be found in him. The problem is, and this is where the crisis is found, is that we, instead of finding our purpose in the creator vertically, we are trying to find our purpose in the creation horizontally. Now, here's the thing about this creation idea, creator versus creation. If you were a Hebrew reader, a Jewish reader, and you were reading this in the original language, what commentators argue is that you would actually be, as you read it, these, just these three verses, specifically these two verses, two and three, what you would be drawn to 
is the book of Genesis. Because in Hebrew, if you read this in Hebrew, there are a few clues, there are a few indicators that Solomon wants you to understand that our primary problem is rooted in the book of Genesis. So there are three clues in this section, if you're reading it in Hebrew. The, the first clue I already told you about, which is that the word man is the word Adam. So a Hebrew reader would have read it and immediately thought of Genesis because the word man there is found. But the second clue that Solomon wants you to think of the book of Genesis is the word Havel. Because if you put the word Havel for vanity next to the word Abel, the name Abel, it's spelled and said exactly the same. So again, another clue that he's trying to push you back to the book of Genesis. But I would say that the third and final clue, and really the most compelling clue, that he's trying to push you back to Genesis is the word toil. I, I told you we were going to come back to that word, the word toil. And the reason why is because I said that word there, toil, it means to work, it means to labor, but it carries the idea of misery and of suffering. It's a troublesome labor, a labor that takes something out of you. And we said the word there, the best word there is to strive. And so what commentators argue is that when Solomon uses that word toil, he uses that word because he wants you to think about the curse and the punishment that God gives Adam after he sins. When Adam sins, God gives him a very specific punishment, a very specific punishment. Look what God says to Adam. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I need you to see that what God tells Adam is that from now on, when you try to work, it won't be work, it will be striving. It will be a toiling that you have to do. It's just toiling that you'll have. He says, work will be hard from here on out because of the consequences of your decision. It will be hard. It will be difficult. Essentially, what we see here is that part of the consequence of the fall is that now our toiling is striving and there is thorns and there is thistles. And so the reason why we are going out to the world to look for purpose is because we've lost the purpose that we had in the garden. That, that since the garden, humanity has not only needed pardon, humanity has needed purpose. But instead of turning to God for it, what we've done is we have settled for fig leaves. Fig leaves that give us false purpose and pseudo-assurance and, and, and false security and false significance and false satisfaction. We have been looking to the world, to creation, to give us what only the Lord, the creator, could give us. We've been toiling ever since. Now, something that I came across this week that I found so incredibly beautiful, it just, it just jumped out at me the moment I saw it, is that we talked about that the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve is that now there's toiling, now there's striving, now there is troublesome labor, right? But something that I came across in the book of Ecclesiastes and then again in the book of Romans is that once sin entered the world, God in his grace, he did something with creation 
so that we might eventually find our way back to him. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 14 and 15. Uh, Solomon writes, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And then listen to this. He says, God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. So Solomon is saying that God has created the world post-fall. God has established the world in such a way that we will look at it and say there's something bigger here. It says that in Romans 1, right? In Romans 1, it says that, that if you look, you will see God in creation. And that when humanity suppresses the reality of God, they can do that. But then they are going from wisdom to foolishness because they are denying and suppressing the truth of God. But what I want you to see here is that what the text is saying is that God has set things up in such a way so that people would fear him. Solomon goes on. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and I love this part, and God seeks what has been driven away. You know what has been driven away from God? Humanity. So, so, so get this, God in his grace has established creation post-fall in such a way so that we might get to a place and say, this doesn't make sense apart from God. This is all meaningless apart from God. He does it because he is seeking after that which has been driven away, church. Romans makes it even clearer. In Romans 8, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing. So get this, creation worships Jesus more than we do. The earth longs for redemption more than I do. And it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, the Greek word for futility, transliterated back to Hebrew, is the word vain or vanity. Same word. That's what the word there, futility, is, right? So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected creation to futility as a result of our sin. Why? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God in his grace, church, we see it in Ecclesiastes 3. We see it in Romans chapter 8. God in his grace, post-fall, literally empty creation of all meaning, of all purpose, so that we would go out into it looking for, for purpose and for meaning and not find it so that we might turn back to him. Here's what I thought of when I was, when I was wrestling with this, and I found it so incredibly beautiful. A couple years ago, my dad got COVID and got it really bad and was on life support for two weeks. And I remember during that time, we were in Chicago, where my, where my family's from, and we were at my parents' house. And every night I would go up uh, to my old room and I would take pictures of my dad and I would set him up on the ground and I would literally lay prostrate and just for, for over an hour every night I would pray and I would beg God to heal my dad, to not take my dad from me. And something that I remember that came to mind while I was praying during that time, during that two-week period, 
is that my dad is not a very expressive person. He's not the type of person that's going to call you. He's not the type of person who's going to look at you and say, hey, I love you or I'm proud of you. He's not that type of person. He's just not wired that way. But as I was thinking about my dad during that time, I remember God showing me all the different ways in which my dad loves me in subtle little ways. How he would just ask me how my day went. How he would sit down and play video games with me. How he would always keep up with NBA basketball even though he doesn't really care about basketball because he wanted something to talk to me about. That, that my dad didn't have these huge expressions of love, but in that moment I, I realized how much my dad actually loved me. Here's why this is important, church. Because what this means is when, when the Bible says that God loves us, so often we think of these like grand expressions of love. We think of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he loved you. And that's true. And that's awesome. But God, his love is not just seen in these grand expressions. It's seen in these little subtle things that God in his grace, in order to seek that which has been driven away, in order to get us back into relationship with him, he created, he put things in such a way, he was the one. Creation didn't subject itself to futility. He subjected creation to futility so that when we go to creation, we end up realizing creation can't fill what only the creator can. That's how good our God is, church. That's beautiful. How dare we ever doubt his love? How dare we ever doubt his goodness? How dare we ever doubt his faithfulness? That's my God. And if you know Jesus, that's your God. And if you don't know Jesus, he can be your God today. Come on. So, so, so humanity is in dire straits. We have nowhere to, we have nothing to do. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. We're looking under the sun and there's nothing we can do. It's just meaninglessness and purposelessness and vanity and havel everywhere we look. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. And so the question is, who is ultimately going to free us from the bondage? Who is in Galatians and in Genesis 3, it says that the seed of the woman, God says, right after he gives that curse, he says to the, to the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to come and his sole purpose will be to crush the head of the serpent. Only one purpose will this seed of the woman have. But the question is, who is the seed of the woman? And, and this week, one of the guys on our teaching team, he sent me this passage and I thought it was so good. Now, look where this is in relation to Ecclesiastes 1. This is literally two chapters before the passage we are in. And look what uh, Agor, the son of Jacob, says. He says, he's looking at life under the sun. And he says, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. He's looking at life under the sun. He's looking at the, meaningless of it, the meaninglessness of it all. At the vanity of, oh, vanity of it all. He's, he's talking to God about it. He says in verse 2, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. Again, Hebrew word there, Adam. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. And I love this. He says, so in light of the fact that I can't do anything about it, verse 4, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Look at this part. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Don't miss it. He keeps going. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So, so, so get this. The psalmist, he's looking at the world. He's looking at the emptiness. He's looking at the vanity. And he says, God, 
I can't do anything about it. Who can? I don't know who it is, but surely you know. And praise God, God did know who it was. Our God knew who it was. He knew who the seed of the woman would be. And in John chapter 1, we are told, I love this, it said that the word was with God and the word was God. And the, Hebrew, the, the, the Greek word there for word is the word logos, which means reason. It means purpose. So, so, so in all the darkness of the Old Testament, we get to John chapter 1, and John says, the logos showed up. The purpose showed up. The reason for everything showed up. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ is our purpose and our logos. He showed up and he had a purpose. He knew his purpose. His purpose was to do the will of the Father who sent him. His purpose was to seek and save the lost and to offer himself as a ransom for many. He never once doubted his purpose. Unlike us who we get into politics and reconciliation and all these other things that are just secondary. At the end of the day, he, he knew. He, when they tried to get him into politics, he didn't do it. When they tried him to form an army, he didn't do it. Why? Because he had a singular purpose. And his purpose was to do the will of his father. His purpose was to redeem us from under the curse and from under the sun church. And he did that for you and for me. And what's crazy about Jesus is that when he came to the end of his life, we said when Adam sinned, God pursued when, 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 Abel, when uh, Cain killed Abel, God pursues. And yet, when the greater Adam comes to the end of his life and he finds himself in his lowest moment, instead of God pursuing him, he punished him. Instead of God finding him, he forsook him. Why? He did it to, uh, he did it to him in his lowest moment so he wouldn't have to do it to us in our lowest moment. And he not only came to be our purpose, he came to give us purpose. Because Jesus says in John 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands. This is after the resurrection and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then look at this. He, he knew what his purpose was, right? The father had sent him. But now he's going to give us purpose. He says, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He not only came to be our purpose, he came to give us purpose. Our purpose now, let me make this very clear, is not to make a ton of money, is not to get a ton of property, is not to get whatever our pseudo purposes are. Our purpose in light of scripture is to make gospel-centered disciples. We glorify God by making gospel-centered disciples. The creation mandate has been replaced in the New Testament with the Great Commission. That is our purpose. That is why God has put us here. Until Jesus comes back, those are our marching orders. So now he is saying to us, as the Father sent me, I had purpose. Now I am sending you. You have purpose. And look what he says. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15. We see the two benefits of the gospel. First, we see the pardon because it says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many churches only ever preach the pardon, which is important and it's vital. But I believe that one of the reasons why young adults leave the church in droves is because we only ever preach pardon and we never preach purpose. Jesus didn't just come to be your pardon 
in the, in the next life. He came to be your purpose in this life. And we see the purpose in verse 58 because it says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I love this, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's no longer vanity when you are in the Lord. It is no longer meaningless when you are in the Lord. And then Paul says this, for to me, to live is Christ. That's purpose. And to die is gain. That's pardon. If I am to live in the flesh, that means, look at this, the exact opposite of the word toiling, fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul says, my purpose is Christ. My pardon is also Christ. But a lot of people in the church, we want Christ as our pardon. We want die to be gain, to die, death to be gain. But we don't want Jesus as our purpose. Listen, if Jesus isn't your purpose in this life, he won't be your pardon in the next one. To die is only gain if to live is Christ. So as we conclude, what we discover and what we learn is that true purpose is not found outward, horizontally, is not found inward, but according to Solomon, true purpose is found upward. Not in the world, but in the Lord. True purpose is not found under the sun, S-U-N. It is found in the sun, S-O-N. And he came not only to give us pardon in the next life, he came to give us purpose in this one. Amen? Amen, amen. What a great lesson today. Uh, welcome to Mission Church. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Um, I'm Stephen Lyles, if you haven't met me. I'm Liam Brownlee second. And uh, we're so glad that you're with us today. Um, we uh, were thankful that you joined us. We're going to talk about the sermon today. We're going to talk with, go through some questions and talk about some things. But before we get there, um, we have Roger moderating for us today. And so y'all mm -hmm. shout out to Roger and say hello and, uh, and tell him where you're, you're watching from. And there, there's a QR code right over Lynn's head so over much. there. Um, and if you'll just click on that, that'll tell you how you can connect with us, how you can give, how you can ask for prayers. Uh, if you need to talk with someone, all that can happen in that QR code. So please click on that and, and see what all that's about. But we're, we're really glad you're here and yeah. we're really excited because we've started this new series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. And it's it's already great, and we're like three verses in, so it's 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 been good already. And Wait so till you get to verse four. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And so it's going to be really good. Uh, we're going to be in this for several months, and so we're we're so happy that you're with us. And uh, we're going to start off by reading. Lynn's going to read the first three verses, and we're going to jump into some questions. All right, Ecclesiastes one verses one through three says, "The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem." Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Okay, and so starting, 
What is something new <laughs> that God taught you in the message today? Did it confront you? Did it convict you? Did it comfort you? And yeah. Why? Yeah. So I, I don't know that anything was like super new or jumped out, but the one thing that I did really like um, from Will's lesson, the first part of it was he talked about um, that the question, the really the, the big question is, mm-hmm. what does man gain? Like, what is what is all this toil for, right? Yeah. And that it, the answer is actually a verse earlier in verse number two. It's worthless. It's all vanity, right? Yeah. And so I was kind of like, that's interesting that the writer asked the question after he's already answered it. You know, um, and so that was really cool and interesting to me. What mm-hmm. about you? Um, for me, I've, I haven't been through Ecclesiastes, so everything is new. <laughs> These first three verses have changed my life completely. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like, I'm looking over my life and I'm like, I'm wasting a lot of time oh, yeah, yeah. just toiling and doing stuff that I thought were actually meaningful. Right. And it's vanity. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, we're going to jump into some more questions here. Um, so in this passage, we learned that life under the sun is meaningless and purposeless, like you just said. Mm-hmm. And and if that's the case, why are we as Christians so tempted to try and find our purpose under the sun instead of in the sun and what happens when we do? Well, for me, I think it's so easy because I'm looking at everybody else and I'm fine. I'm like, okay, they look like they have a good point on life they look they got it together see this guy oh he looks like he has everything together so i'm like picking and choosing other things Mm. because in in christ while we should have everything a lot of times my eyes aren't fixed on christ yeah and since i'm fixing it on them i'm in a way almost coveting what they have yeah and i'm trying to find my purpose in that i'm like maybe if i just get enough money yeah i'll be good there and then once that's good you know i found my purpose but i never get a hold of anything i never right. it always kind of like sifts through my hand like mm-hmm. drew said a couple weeks ago it just like falls through my head yeah and it's just like why why can't i catch this purpose and, and this like you said i'm finding it under the sun instead of in the sun right. i'm not going to christ to be my all in all i'm going to everything else to be that and so it just becomes meaningless to yeah me. it goes back to that same that same thread that we see all throughout scripture which is and it starts in genesis right that we think we can do it. Mm-hmm. We think that it's our responsibility to to do everything and and provide our own purpose and to save ourselves and all that stuff. And it and it goes back to that line. That's not the truth. Yeah. The truth is is that you know we're not in control. You know this is not our it's not our story. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's definitely interesting um, why we think we have to do or why we think we can do that over and over and over and over again when we're told so many times in scripture and and in life it's not that's not how it is yeah it's not that's not the truth you can't do it (laughs) yeah that's right that's right okay so let me ask you this yeah in the gospel it says jesus came to give us not just pardon for the next life but purpose in this life but unfortunately the gospel that is usually preached in the west only offers uh people like us his pardon and not his purpose so why do you think that is and what do you think actually happens to us as hearers when we only get the half of the gospel just the the pardon instead of the purpose yeah i I think and we've talked about this will's talked about this from the stage uh, a good bit um but you know here in the west we have this 
this idea of, of church and it's about personalities and it's about people and it's about programs and all those things, right? Mm-hmm. And and we consider that the first floor, right, of church. And every church has that. Yeah. Like you go into any church in Memphis or any any city really, and you're gonna have those things. Programs, people's personalities, and there's another P, I can't remember it right now. But we have all those things, right? But what's missing is purpose. And that's the second floor, right? Yeah. And so I think we get in this this thing where all we do is worry about the first floor and people walk in the front door and they can hear the gospel, right? And they can respond to the gospel and they're saved. God saves them, right? But they don't find purpose. And so they walk out the back door and mm. we don't we don't know where they went. We don't know why they left. We're like, what, what happened, right? And I think that that happens in church a lot or in churches a lot here in the West. But what Christ is trying to get us to understand is there is a purpose, right? Yeah. And Matthew, uh, you know, talks about that. Jesus talks about that at the end of Matthew, Matthew the Great Commission. Like, what is our pur- our purpose? Is to make disciples. Yeah. Our purpose is to teach everyone the things that we've been commanded to do by by Christ. And so, you know, when you find that purpose, it it takes you to another level. Like we we understand what life is really about then it's not about gaining things right it's Mm -hmm. not about how much money we have it's not about how much fame we have it's not about you know how many likes we have on on instagram or all those things right it's about teaching people the gospel it's about teaching people that they can be saved from you know through god that god can save them and and wants to do that right and so i think that's that's a big part of what's happening here in the west um, and we trade the real purpose for all these many purposes. Mm. I've been on this health kick recently and I've lost a little bit of weight and I'm, I feel stronger and I feel better. And, and I have to remind myself every day in the gym that this is vanity mm-hmm. because guess what's going to happen? One day this body is going to give out and it's going to, it's going to be gone. Right. And what, I, what do I have left? Mm. Have I, you know, made disciples? Mm-hmm. You know, have I um, preached the gospel to people? Because that is the eternal thing that continues. This body won't, right? Mm-hmm. But the eternal will. And that's why I loved what Will said today is that we have eternity within us. Yeah. It's so great. It's so wonderful. You know? I'm telling you, like, we, I think we really don't focus so much on the eternal a lot of time because yeah. part of it is we don't see it. Yeah. And so since we don't see it, it's kind of like out of mind, out of sight. Sure. And we're just like, okay, let me fix what I can do here. Yeah. Like you said, what can I control here? What can right. I grasp onto here? What can I hold on to here? And that's a part of me really loves the church in the East because they don't have the bottom floor right you you don't get a chance to it's like right this is life or death here yeah and so if if i'm gonna go in i'm I'm going in all the way what what is the reason why i'm here they come in looking for purpose because they're they everything else has failed them yeah it's so good and if for them literally to live is christ and to die is gain i think for us we're like okay to die is gain but to live uh, i need a house i need a car (laughs) i need i need some more some more money like we we putting everything else as our purpose to live for instead of christ being our purpose right because i think we've been spoiled by all this other stuff right and and you know don't get us wrong that that stuff is is important like that stuff is cool like it's okay to to be fit and to have all that and it's great Mm -hmm. but it reminds me of that story in scripture 
um, that parable in scripture where the the guy, the businessman, the the owner, the farmer, you know, is wealthy and he's got all these big barns and he goes, you know, self, what am I going to do now? I'm I'm rich. I'm doing well. You know, what am I going to do now? And he decides to tear down his stuff and build bigger barns, right? Mm-hmm. And and God calls him a fool. Yes. Because he's like, that doesn't matter. Your soul is now required of you. That's basically what he says, right? And then what? Yeah. Now, what's now what, buddy? What's your barns going to do now? Like, right? And so I think about all those those lesser purposes that we trade Christ or God for or the gospel for, right? Uh, and am I am I replacing the real purpose with those lesser purposes? And I've got to yeah. be careful. You know, We've got to be careful thing, not to do God that. Things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that kind of brings us to a kind of an application question, which is in this in this season of life, what are you specifically being tempted to find your purpose or meaning uh, in, in that smaller than Jesus? And in what aspect or benefit of the gospel are you prone to forget? For me, I, I think that God being enough, because a lot of times, um, especially so far now, I've been kind of fixated on the money thing. Yeah. Because stuff is happening and, and bills have come up and yeah. surgeries are needed. And I'm just like, oh, if I just get a little bit more money. Yeah. Like then 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 it's gonna be it's gonna be all right. <laughs> right. So I just gotta work a little bit harder. I gotta get a better job. Gotta, yeah. Gotta I'm yeah. just striving and yeah. working toilessly. And I'm forgetting, yo, God cares for the birds. God cares for the grass. How much more does he care about you? Right. How much more will he provide for you? Right. How much more right. does he love you? And when that is reminded back at me, I'm like, I don't have to strive. Yeah. God has done it all. He, he's finished all of the work. Yeah. I have to rest in him and find my hope and my purpose in him. Right. Even if, Lord willing, this stuff doesn't happen, which I pray it does, yeah. God still has to be enough for me. Right. And until that becomes enough, everything else is kind of like the bubble, he says, where I'm trying to touch it and it just pops. And so now I'm on to the next bubble. And right. It's constantly popping. Yeah, we we do. We trade those. We trade lesser things for 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 you know lesser things. Honestly, and, yes. uh, a lot of times I feel like I just move from one distraction to the next distraction. You mm-hmm. know, my wife will say probably I, I tend to do that with a lot of things, but uh, <laughs> I'll I'll have one distraction and I, and then I'll trade it for another one, right? And it's it's no better. It's just a different distraction. It's just a different, you know, lesser um, purpose or lesser meaning. Mm-hmm. And so I think really we need to keep that in our in our, our mind. Preach to ourselves, self. You know, what's important today? Yeah. You know, what's important today? Am I am I talking to that person? You know, you, you shared while we were off camera about going to the park and helping to talk to people about Jesus. And I'm like, man, I want to do that. Like, let's do that. I can yeah. do that. And so, like that that kind of thing. You know, are we are we are we really tapping into that purpose? You know, mm-hmm. so well we're out of time, but we absolutely love that you joined us today. Please take these questions and uh, and ask your neighbors with you know about them and, and talk to your family when you sit down for a meal tonight. You know, let's go through some of these questions and ask these questions and see what what comes up and and you have an opportunity to disciple your family yeah. and your neighbors you know uh and your friends and and that's what this is about and so we want you to find that and and have community and look if you're looking for community uh, we're here in memphis um we have a location in collierville we would love to see you we'd love to have you with us here at mission church um but 
get connected. You know, if you're across the country or across the world, we can help you find a church and yeah. get connected. And that's what that's what we want to do. That's what we're about. And so, uh, we love you. We're thankful that you're with us today, and we'll we'll see you next week. Uh, we hope you have a great week. Have a good one.